Morning, church. Morning. How are you all today? Doing blessed in the Lord, I hope. Very good. So. Alrighty then. So, looking at today's message, it's going to be a bit different. We just finished up a chapter in Acts, and so we're going to be using a. We're actually going to be doing a topical study today to fill, kind of fill in the end of the month. So today we're going to be focusing on a little thing that I kind of feel it's very apropos for where we're at right now. It's it. My message today is called "God Meeting You Where You Are." So it's kind of looking at how we are in this pandemic, how we're meeting outside, different venue than normal. This is going to be, I feel like, it doesn't matter where you are on earth, the, the constant message of the Bible is God will meet you wherever you are, be it here, there, somewhere, in the, some in the middle. And so today, we're going to be bouncing around a bit in Scripture, but I'll give you some time to turn to the passages. So, starting up with, uh, I'll go through all of my main points first. So first up is going to be, Number one, in terms of years, there is no set point in life where we meet God. Doesn't matter how old, how young, God can take, will take you wherever you are in your, on your walk from birth to death. Okay, our second point, often God will choose a time, place, or method in which we did not expect an angle that we thought maybe God blindsided us, but it was actually we were trying to blindside him by trying to they can follow our expectations. Third, the one common factor in a meeting with God is a humble heart. You want to meet with him? Come before him humbly. So, when you're ready, get out your Bibles and we'll turn to the first passage. This is going to be in Genesis chapter 12, verses 7 and 8. So let's turn there real quick. And it reads, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Bit of an odd starting point, but you'll see where I'm going with this, or where God's going with this. So, at this time, remember this man Abram is going to become Abraham. He is going to be the future ancestor of both Israel and the Arabs through his sons Isaac and Ishmael. In this, we see Abraham, remember this, he lived in a time when people were still living slightly longer than, norm, than what we, we would consider normal. Abraham's going to live to all the way at 175. And at this point in his life, Abraham is about, they calculate about 70, the word says about 75 years old. And even then, he was old enough to be a grandfather. So keep in mind, though, look at, the, at this point, he's still called Abram. He's not yet embraced his walk with God. He's just meeting him at 75 years old. So he's been raised in the background. He's been about the 10th in line from Noah after the flood. He's been raised in a pagan culture, and he, is, he grew up in a city, like in the, what's the club now, southeast Iraq. So now he is moving God, basically, he's been called upon by a God he hasn't heard from, or hasn't, maybe he's heard about, but hasn't heard from, hasn't met personally yet. He's also going to be leaving behind 
all family and friends from everything he knows, and he's going to be moving to a land that he has never seen for once in his life. And yet, he will go, and God will use him in mighty ways, because, like, well, in a sense, that's the way God works. But it always depends on us meeting God and following where he calls. So Abraham, at 75, having lived most of his, having lived all his life in one area, he still has the faith and he has the flexibility in his, his trust to follow God to a completely new place. Okay, so then we see that's Abraham at 75. We are, often we see, you see God call people when they're younger, like flip ahead to Genesis chapter 28, and we'll read through verses 10 through 13. So this is the famous account of Jacob's Ladder, which you've often heard of in story and song. So let's read starting in verse 10 when we get there. Let me know when you're ready. Starting up with verse 10. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head, and he laid down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants. Now, that sounds pretty familiar. That's the same promise that God gave to Abraham. But let's take a look at where Jacob is in his life at this point. So, we know that going back to the biblical account before, in the chapters previous, we learned that Isaac, their father, Abraham's son, his son, was uh, about 60 years old when his sons were born. And when they go through the famous account of Jacob on his move here, he's about 40 years old. So his dad's about 100 years old, and we see, well, let's check back out where Jacob is at this point. He's the grandson of Abraham, but is he at a good point in his life right now? Well, let's, back, let's backtrack a bit. Let's recall, according to Genesis, Jacob is a second-born son. He is, uh, he is a fraternal twin, Esau, who was born just seconds before him. And yet Jacob, as the second-born son, is only going to get half as much as Esau will ever get. So, true to his name, which means grabber or, or trip, he who trips another up because he was grabbing his brother's heel when he came out of the womb, Jacob tricks his brother out of both his birthright, and just now, he has stolen his brother's blessing. And Esau says, after dad's dead, you're gonna follow him. And so Jacob, at this point, who a boy who has schemed to get everything, now has absolutely zip. So he's on, his on the run, he is, like Abraham, he is departed from friends and family, he's on his way to a place of safety, but right now he's in the wilderness, alone. And at this point in his life, when he's all he has, the only thing he has is a rock for a pillow, God chooses to come to this deceitful, manipulative boy and say, I'm going to be, I'm going to give you this land to you and your descendants. You who have nothing, I'm going to give, you're going to depend on me. I will give you everything. 
And so in Kingman, this is the guy who later will be renamed Israel, meaning that he will be the one who wrestles with God, and he will be the ancestor of the 12 tribes of Israel who continue to this day. So think about that. We had a man who was like a prince called to live like a, a wandering Bedouin. Then we have this manipulative boy who has been, who's going to be the ancestor of Israel. And then we'll look further on now at one of his descendants later on. This next passage will turn to Judges chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. So jumping out of the book of, of Genesis to head to the books of history. Yes? Ah, okay. Yeah, car washes. What can you do, right? Okay, so Judges chapter 6. Okay. Judges chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which is, was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. So... The Bible doesn't really give a specific age of where Gideon is at at this point, though I would guess if I had to calculate, I'd say maybe he's somewhere in his 20s or 30s, so very, a younger man by the standards. And look, let's keep in mind, it says he, it's hiding grain, he's trying to hide grain from the Midianites. How many are familiar with the Midianites? Okay, so they are... To go backtrack a little bit, the Midianites are this uh, wandering tribe, kind of like the Arabs, uh, similar ancestry. However, in this case, they are a group of, kind of like the Amalekites, they were a group of desert raiders. It says they're, other capitalists would say that they were like the, they were like, lo, like a plague of locusts come in with camels, like the number of the sand of the seashore. So these guys are coming in, they're marauding raiders, and they're taking everything Israel produces or grows. And this guy, Gideon, He's a young man in his 20s. He's trying to, basically, he's, he's hiding out in, the, in the, one of the lowest places he can get to hide from the Midianites and to hold out to something. And yet God calls him a mighty man of valor because, <clears throat> so he calls him such because God has, having the eternal mindset, sees the great, the great faith that Gideon will have. He's actually counted, remember, if you know the story later on, he's counted as one of the greatest of the judges God does a great work with him, with only a little that he provides, or that Gideon provides, that is. And God basically overthrows this, this, this huge army with only 300 men under Gideon. So looking at that, those three men, Abraham, 75. Jacob, 40s. Gideon, 20s maybe. So looking at how, how God approached each of them for a great work, and called each of them in where they were at, whether physically or spiritually. And just goes to prove that point that it's kind of like the saying that you're never too old to go to church, whether you started off as being baptized or started off as a kid, a teenager, or into your adult years, even your mature years. As long as you come to God with an open heart and with a willing spirit, God will open his arms to you. He says, you're never too late to come to me, whether from the day, from the, the day you were first able to choose me on your own, or if you're on your deathbed, God will take you 
however you come to him, wherever you're at in life. Okay. That brings us to our second point, looking at how God chooses, looking at the way that God approached each of these men in a different way, but looking at how God will often choose a time, place, or method that we do not expect. <laughs> I think it's almost like a point, a sense of humor with God, looking at, okay, here's how they think I'm going to work, now here's how I'm going to work. So we'll take a flip back from Judges. We'll look at how God approaches in different ways. Look at Exodus chapter 3, the, one of the most famous chapters of the book, one of the most famous callings in the, in the Bible, I think. So we're looking at, ah, so looking at the account of Moses and how he's approached by God through the burning bush. Are we doing new there? Okay, starting in verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock back to, to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So he, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. So keep in mind, so this is, this is probably the one time we've ever seen God work in this way. And we've seen God with tongues of fire or working, with, working through fire in other ways, but this is the only time in the Bible when we ever see God talk out of a burning bush. Yes? So, God chose to approach Moses in a most unique way. I mean, being a shepherd in the desert, he would have been familiar looking out at people burnt, setting a fire under a bush or using a bush as kindling to start a fire up, but seeing a bush that does not burn up where the fire is like the Energizer Bunny keeps going and going and going. That is a really unusual thing to see. And keep in mind of how God is going to use Moses. Here's a man who was, one, born a slave. Two, he was raised in the house of the Pharaoh who tried to kill him as a baby. And three, He's a man who is now a fugitive from the law. He's living in exile on the run because he killed an Egyptian. And now God is going to use this, quote-unquote, a royal misfit, and he's going to use him against the most powerful nation in the world at that time to free his people and bring them out of the land of slavery. He would be like, uh, God, did you miss a couple strings here and there? Because think about it. Maybe the people of Israel were expecting... A conqueror, maybe someone kind of like the people in Jesus' time, would expect somebody coming with a sword, with an army, to overthrow the powerful empire and free the people that way. But God chose a simple man who had lived to 40 years as a shepherd, after living for 40 years in a palace. So Moses is about 80 years old this time, and God is going to use him to approach and work work a miracle, several miracles, to lead his people through, out of the land of Egypt, through the desert, to the land of promise. Kind of, the truth says that God's ways kind of boggle the mind, doesn't it? 
And yet, if we ever understood God, I think the mystery, the wonder would be no more. He would, if, if you understood God, then he wouldn't be God. <laughs> yeah, so, then jumping ahead to ah, another famous prophet. So Horeb is also, that's the other name for Mount Sinai. And this is the place where we see, that's where God eventually brings Israel. It's his high place where he will give them the law. And yet God is going to approach another prophet at the same place, but in a very different way. So we're going down to, going, you're going to flip over to first to book of First Kings, chapter nineteen. So this is where we can start up in verse eleven. It says, ah, when we reach there, so verse eleven. Then he said, "Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord." And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. Keep in mind, let's look back at Exodus. This is the same mountain where God came down in a, basically like a meteor shower on the top of the mountain with fire, smoke, and he spoke with a voice like a trumpet. And yet he approaches as a still, small voice to this prophet. Well, keep in mind, it was a different time and a different, different people there. Moses and the nation of Israel were there. Here, the man he's, going, he's beyond speaking to, the prophet Elijah, is alone. Now let's keep backtrack a bit about where God is, where God is work, has worked with Elijah just before this. Elijah has just been on another mountain in Israel, Mount Carmel, where he faced off in a battle of 450 to 1 against the prophets of Baal. This is where Israel has been absorbed into idol worship. They've been worshiping Baal, the god of the sun, or the god of power, god of fire, and he's been going up against Basically, they turned away from God, and God used Elijah, this one man, to do what 450 prophets couldn't do. He prays at an altar, and God sends fire from heaven, like almost like a nuclear focused nuclear missile, onto the altar. And God has used him to wipe out pagan worship in Israel. And then the royals say, like Queen Jezebel, I should say, especially says, Elijah, see what those pro- you did those prophets? You're next on my hit list. And so Elijah actually. He was expect, I think he was expecting Ahab and Jezebel, the king and the queen of Israel, to repent as well. When they don't, he runs away. He actually flees and asks God to let him die. He says, my life, is, my life is worthless, God. I've failed. And yet God brings him to Mount Sinai and lets him know, Elijah, the work's not over yet. There are still work for you to do. There's still people you need to appoint, people you need to preach to, and there are people that are still faithful to me. And he tells him through looking at the power of nature, the wind, the earth, and the fire, and then the presence of God. So it's just supposed to show that, quote, God is not bound by human experience or by the powers of nature or by nature itself. He's the creator. We're the creation. God goes back to when I was studying about this, looking at a quote from C.S. Lewis in his book Prince Caspian from the Chronicles of Narnia. 
He says, quote, things never happen the same way twice. So yes, people can say, oh yeah, lightning never strikes twice in the same place, but it's a deeper meaning than that. Looking at how God works, like Elijah might have been going to Mount Sinai, might have expected an experience like Moses, but God says, no, I'm going to work, I'm the same God, and I, you're the one my prophet, as in a way that Moses was, but I'm going to work with you a different way than I did with Moses. God, like I said, God is not limited to our expectations. He will often find a way that we don't expect and that will kind of blow our minds and prove that, yes, I am still God. I am not bound by you. I am going to do a wonder in you and work miracles. And, uh, and it will be wonderful. So then... Moving on to the next verse, we'll look at, ah, this goes to Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. There'll be a reference in it. To, it's referencing Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, but let's turn to the Gospel of Matthew real quick. So starting up in Matthew chapter 1, verse, starting in verses 22 to 23. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. So yes, we're all familiar with Jesus' title, Emmanuel, but... Let's think about what that meant for, for the Israel. Even in Isaiah's day, this idea of a virgin giving birth, yeah, people are, well, yeah, virgin giving birth, isn't that what happened when a woman gives birth to her first child? But God, again, worked in a very unique way in every other place in the Bible when he gave a miracle child, there was always a, there was always a married woman, a woman who had a husband, and therefore it wouldn't have been a big surprise, even in her old age, that, yes, they had a child, God worked in them both, but for God to work in the woman alone, as he did with Mary, that was, that defied the laws of nature in a way. And yet, as I said, God is not bound by his own rules. He's not bound by his own creation, I should say. So this is a new work. It's hinted at in the Old Testament, but again, not what the Jews were expecting. Again, Jesus would come as Emmanuel, God with us. They were expecting a warrior king, and Jesus came as, not only as God in the flesh, he also came as a suffering prophet. It's kind of like they, they kind of like they get the way people look at the first and second comings. In the first coming, they were expecting a warrior king, and they got the meek prophet. In the second coming, the world will be expecting a meek prophet, but they'll get the warrior king. It's so looking how people's expectations often be the very opposite of what God is intending, because we don't have the same mindset as He does in that case. And yet. In a sense, looking at also like this idea of like, Jesus being God in the flesh, that was something that the Jews, they'd, we'd seen like the, the, quote, the pre-incarnate Christ at different points in the Bible, like for example, Abraham and others. We'd seen other, many, many people visited by angels, and we saw the human prophets that God sent, but he had never before literally come in the flesh. He'd never been born as a baby, he'd never been grown up to be a man, and he had never come as the Messiah. It was hinted at throughout all the Old Testament, but again, 
the Jews did not expect God's plan to, they didn't expect his methods to shift. They thought they could predict God, hold him in a box in a sense. And yet God is a wonderful way of blowing our minds and blowing the box out of shape or out of, our, out of the shape we set for it. That brings us down to our third point, which is looking at the one common factor in meeting with God is a humble heart. So this we'll look to, so for this first verse, we're looking to the book of Isaiah, the prophet himself. So we're going to Isaiah chapter 6. So starting up in verse 5 through and going through verse 8. So the, Isaiah is speaking in the first person. He says, So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with un, of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. <coughs> so let's remember... This is Isaiah the prophet. He's in some way, he, I think he's like a distant cousin to the kings of Israel. And in that, and, and in his capacity as prophet, he's already been, already been speaking to Israel about their sins and how they need to repent. Now, in this chapter, for the first time, it's, he, sees the, he sees God in all his glory. <coughs> and it went like, like Elisha before, he is, his eyes are opened and he sees, like Moses, God in his Shekinah glory, his innermost presence in a sense. He's surrounded by four angels, or six, surrounded by angels, they call the seraphim. They are, we've seen like the cherubim, seraphim. So cherubim are the ones with four wings, and they have like the four faces on their, on their heads. And they're the ones who were escorting God as he moved around on earth in Ezekiel. In Isaiah, the seraphim are even closer to God. They have six wings, and with two of their wings, they're covering their faces, and two wings, they're covering their feet. They're even closer to God than cherubim, and like Moses' face... They, they absorb God's glory and it kind of resides in them. So they actually shielding themselves with their wings helps people to even look at them because they're so close to God. Kind of like Moses putting the veil over his face. And Isaiah, seeing God in all his glory, says, I'm going to die. Just that's why he says, woe is me. He says, quote, I'm a sinful man and sin cannot live in God's presence. My lips, my mouth, things I have said are, have not been honoring to God and, and I'm going to get blown away here. Well, then when God sends one of the seraphim, and through his grace, God cleanses Isaiah of his sin. And, having since, and then when God speaks again, Isaiah is in a place where he can hear and he can truly respond in, in, a hum, in, a right, in the right heart to God's call. God's saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? I mean, who's going to be my messenger? Who's going to be my prophet? And Isaiah having seen himself as he is and humbled himself before God, having been forgiven of his sins, Isaiah says, can now, is in the right place where he can say, me, God, I'm willing to go. He's not doing it out of a sense of ego. He's not doing it out of a sense of duty. He's saying, quote, 
And because God has shown me grace, I am now able and willing to serve God in the capacity that he needs and that he requires of me. Then we'll see a similar response. We'll turn to these next two will be in the New Testament. We see looking turn, turning to Luke chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. So we'll turn over to the Gospel of Luke. So, starting verses, starting chapter 5, verses 8 through 11 in the book of Luke. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so, all, so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So when they brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. So let's keep in mind, this is the, this is the time when Jesus is just starting out his ministry. He has come to Galilee. He was speaking from Simon Peter's boat to the crowd on the shore. And, and Simon's brother, Andrew, is going to be the one who introduced him to Jesus. So these four fishermen who have worked on their, all their lives on the Sea of Galilee, it's, the, it's in the daytime, they usually fish at night, and Jesus called them out to go in, into, to, in the daytime to let down their nets for a catch. After they'd spent all night catching zip, zero, they, he says, Peter says, okay, if you say so, we'll go out and let down the nets. And they catch so many fish between, their, between Simon and Andrew and their partners, James and John with Zebedee, that the, their boats are starting to sink. So God brought all the fish in there, and he's, it's a miracle. And Simon Peter says, Lord, please move away. I'm a, I'm a sinful man. Like Isaiah, he recognized that God was working here and that he was, he, he was not worthy of being in God's presence. And yet Jesus, looking at this man who's fearful, but has humbled himself before God, Jesus says, don't be afraid. So Simon knows he's unworthy. He admits it. But Jesus chooses him anyway. He says, you're going to be a fisher of men. So he knows that he's looking at it with that eternal mindset that only God has. He, is, he looks at, it, at the future and says, this is the man who will be going to become one of the 12 apostles, who will become a key leader in the early church. And will, his words will, in the book of Acts, help set, help set church doctrine and the, the operations of the church for centuries to come. And yet what was required for, for Jesus to use Simon was for him to have that same humble heart that Isaiah had showed when he was in the presence of God. And even further, like we jumped over to the, so looking even further down, even after Simon is in operation of the church, we'll, we're looking to see how God will still call people in a very miraculous way. So looking at the Catonia Ped to Acts chapter 9, Verses 3 through 6, we covered this passage a few months ago, I believe, but it never hurts to refresh ourselves. So, so this is going to be in chapter 9 of Acts, verses 3 through 6. Okay, so this is when we see 
The Apostle Paul, while he's still known by his birth name, Saul of Tarsus, he's still persecuting, he's persecuting the church at this time in his life. <coughs> and he's on his way to another, another city outside of Judea to, the, to do the same. It says, starting in verse 3, As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, meaning Paul, Saul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So keep in mind, this is Saul of Tarsus we're talking about. He's a man in his, other part, in his own credentials. He is a Jew among Jews, a man who was raised at the, in Jerusalem at the feet of one of the greatest rabbis of his day. And he's been one of the most ardent persecutors of the, of the way, that is, in the, of the church, from the, from the book, from the stoning of Stephen onward. And Saul, remember, he thought he was doing a good thing. He, was follow, he thought that the meant, meant to follow God was to obey the laws, that he was a Pharisee. But now he comes, in, he gets, because the, the glory of God shines around him, Jesus himself comes to Saul to call him, and Saul is, realizes, uh-oh, I thought, he says, kicking against the goads, I thought I was going the right way. God's put, giving me a little reminder saying, hey, not that way, pal. You're going the exact opposite way I want you to go. And so Saul realizes he doesn't even try to have any, he doesn't even try to make any suggestions. He doesn't try to make any, he doesn't ask, do anything except ask a question. He realizes, I've had my ideas all wrong. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do with God's word since I've been, I thought I was following the right way, but I've been going the wrong way. So let's go to the source, shall we? He says, quote, what do you want me to do? He's a man who has realized he's been opposing God's work and is now seeking a new direction from the author himself. So, even, so, in all of his, so in all of his human hubris, when he was facing off with the Christians, he never saw his own, his own failing. But when confronted by God, he says, like Isaiah, he says, uh-oh, that's, that, that's the right way. I'm not there. And so he's seeking humbly. He humbles himself before God, says, what do you want me to do? It's the true sign of his conversion when you ask God, it's, not, it's your, your way is right. I've been going the wrong way. How do I get to where you want me to be? But in all three cases, with Isaiah, with Simon Peter, and with Saul, they all humbled themselves before God. And the same is true of us today, that we are called to humble ourselves, say, quote, if God is God, I am not. That's what Jesus means to, when he says, quote, to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. That first step, deny yourself, saying, your way, God, not my way. And just thinking about, to so consider those, and then looking at how we are today, looking at where we are in the pandemic, it's, it's looking at where the, how the government's operating and how the world seems to be spiraling out of control, that I think that's a very key reminder for us to always be looking to where God wants us to go, that think about wherever God's leading, wherever the people in our lives, be they friends or family, people we've known for years, maybe we just met, that there's no such, there's no set time when God says, okay, they have to wait so long and then I will then they may follow me. No, God is ready to meet with us right at the moment when we turn to him.
then looking at how God, maybe, maybe God will use you, maybe he'll use something you said, something you've written, then maybe he'll use someone you've talked to to reach out to someone who's not saved. There's no limit to where God can do within his character to reach someone. Then looking at the, the key factor, whether they be the greatest, maybe the most, maybe most virtuous person ever in their lives before God, they thought they were, or maybe they were the most despicable person the God will, God will, the one common factor wherever we're at with our morality, if we come to God and realize who he is, who we are not, and we humble ourselves, then God can start to work with us. And may God remind us of that as we, and may our deep group in our hearts as God has, takes us forth from this place. Please bow your heads in prayer. Lord, I'm just, we're just humbled that you would even in this day and age, Lord, you continue to work through us. That you have not said that you have not told us the plan is finished, which means you still have work to accomplish in us, Lord. I pray that as we are as we go out from this place, that your spirit would just indwell us and empower us, Lord, that you'd be working in and through us, making us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord. That until the last, that we would continue to strive with you, to continue to walk with you, Lord until the very last person to say that, Lord, we would not give up until you'd say, it is finished, and call us home, Lord. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.